0: Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a brand new podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of film. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always, Sean Baker, and today's topic is the 1952 film Akiru, directed by Akira Kurosawa. So for a quick plot summary of this movie, this is about a man named Watanabe, he is a bureaucrat, believe it, like City Hall? Yes. I forget his exact title.
1: The Public Affairs Section Chief.
0: Okay. Good. Got it. <laughs> but um, it's sort of this, you know, one of those bureaucrat jobs, you know, massive amount of paperwork where you see it even in the background, just this ridiculous amount where it's or even shots where it's burying people in them. Yes. And he finds out he's dying of stomach cancer. And he is the rest of the movie. He is trying to find a way to do something worthwhile because he's realized at that job he's really done nothing. He's just stamped papers and directed people where to go when they need a problem. He's never really done anything of actual use. Even though the big irony is he has the certificate of a certain amount of years' service to City Hall, and we see not only that but we see flashbacks with his earlier life. You know, how he's sort of, he's estranged from his adult son. His son really doesn't want a lot to do with him, even though they live in the same house together. So it's just sort of that, and spoiler alert, he eventually succumbs to stomach cancer. But he finds a way to do something with his life after venturing other opportunities. And his employees... Wondering if he knew he had stomach cancer and they're debating their flashbacks and it's sort of in the way you're they're talking one of them seems like I want to carry on Watanabe's legacy of finding something worthwhile and the others and like the traditional drunk you know drunk guys saying I'm gonna do this we're gonna start this they act like they're gonna do it but in the very last scene we see that no they're just continuing the, the endless cycle of bureaucracy that's a brief summary of the movie and yeah. basically it's about if you lived a life where you didn't you didn't really live what would you do to find something worthwhile to leave an impact
1: yeah uh and that's a that's a good summary of the movie and i think it's telling that the title uh i hope i'm pronouncing the word right is Ikiru. yes uh which is uh a, a verb meaning to live in the Japanese language. And I think the overall message of the film is, it is inadequate to merely live. And this is something that Watanabe discovers, and uh, somewhere in the film, I can't exactly remember where and who says it, um, but they, they, they say that, in effect, discovering that you are soon to die has a wonderful focusing effect on uh, on um, your evaluation of your life up to that point and that's a common uh, thing that is reported by people that discover they have uh, a terminal disease or something like that or people that are about to go into combat this is another common, uh, I've read enough accounts of this in military history, people that are about to go into combat situations and realize that they are going to die, um, you start reflecting on your life and asking the kinds of difficult questions that uh, Kanji Watanabe asks of himself. And and you, you go through um, uh, uh, a fairly... Critical examination of your life, and and that's what he ends up doing. But what's kind of funny about this film in the in the, in the early parts of it, it's a straightforward narration in the early parts, right? You see Watanabe at work. He, he's got this doctor's appointment. He has to go to the doctor's appointment. He has this uh, very unnerving. Uh, a conversation with a fellow patient in the waiting room who basically says, Hey, you know, if you're told you have a mild ulcer, you're in deep trouble. That really means you have stomach cancer and you have a few, a, a few months to live. So he hears all this goes into the doctor's office and the uh, doctor gives him precisely that line. And, uh, Wataname even asks him, you can be honest with me. You need to tell me what's really going on. And the guy doesn't want to, for whatever reason, Uh, Is he being paternalistic? He doesn't want to upset the patient? Or is he just trying to avoid responsibility and and the difficult uh, uh, conversation? Uh, Avoidance of responsibility seems to be a big theme in this film. Um, Watanabe himself and all the other bureaucrats are masters at avoiding responsibility and passing the buck. There is no Harry Truman in this story. Um, So I think that's one of the things he's, he's examining there. And, and then to make matters worse for the poor guy, he goes home after this and he's sitting in the dark in one of the rooms in his house that happens to be the room that his son, who you mentioned, and his wife actually live in. They come home. They don't know he's there. And they're having a conversation about him and about getting his pension. They're kind of waiting for him to get out of the way and die so they can get their money. He hears this and it is just the worst possible double whammy for poor Watanabe. He asks himself, Have I lived? and uh, lived in the stronger sense of the word, not merely existing but lived. He says, No. And then what does he do? What a lot of people will do in that kind of a case, when you, you fall into a depression like that, a, a shocked depression, you go out and drink. He goes out and drinks. He runs into a uh, frustrated writer in the sake bar, who's kind of a funny character. I like that guy. Um, And he says, they have a fairly profound conversation, but then he says, come on, you might as well live, and I'm going to show you how to live. So he goes through this phase, not unlike the Bill Murray character in Groundhog Day at the beginning of that movie, where... He, they're they're going to just, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of, uh, party? Paint he, the town red. Paint the town red, yeah. be hedonist So he's out drinking. They go to a strip club. They go to what in effect is a, a piano bar, right? Mm-hmm. And he comes to the realization over the course of that night that this is not satisfying either. It is, uh, once again, a, a, a species of avoidance. Uh, avoiding avoiding the truth that he's going to die pretty soon, and avoiding the moral imperative that you, you still, as a human being, have to do something significant. Um, and then this is poignant, very poignantly e- expressed uh, when when he, when the piano bar musician asks for any requests. And he requests that he he sing a song called, let me find it here. I've got my lousy handwriting. Uh, um, Life is Brief, right? And it is a very sad song. It, it, It tells, it's essentially from the point of view of an older person telling younger maidens, young girls, you know, before your life force ebbs. Before the rose in your cheeks uh, fades, before you come become old, for God's sake, live your life. Do something significant. And he sings it over and over again. And this there's a reprise of the song later in the movie. Um, so he goes from that night of relative debauchery to the next morning, uh, meeting a uh, meeting up with this woman that used to work under him in the uh, um, public affairs section she quit and she actually she comes over to his place to have him sign a form that allows her to quit that job yeah right Is't that mm-hmm. correct yes yes so she's younger youthful kind of the maiden that this song uh, mentions. And he becomes enamored with her because she's full of life. It's not an erotic thing at all, not a romantic thing at all. Uh, She's just full of life. And he realizes, oh, my God, this is what I've missed out all my life on. Uh, And she tells him uh, in a conversation they have that uh, she has nicknames for all the other people she's worked for. And then he asks her, what's your nickname for me? And she says, the mummy. And there's a significance there. He's, he's, he's stopped living. He's become a mummy in order to make a living, protect his income, but also um, support his son.
0: And we'll say wrapped up in paper.
1: And he's wrapped up in paper. Yeah. Very good point. And uh, 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 she, she actually, he says, I did it for the sake of my son. You know, poor me. And she actually says, don't blame it all on him. You made the choice. That's a very interesting uh, part of that film there.
0: Yeah, and we see in the, speaking of the son, we see in the flashbacks, like, almost explaining why exactly his son has been so distant from him. Yes. We see early on they've lost, um, their the, mo- the mother passed away some time ago. Yes. And then his son went off to fight in World War II. And then one time his son had to get a surgery on his appendix yeah. and instead of his father being there for them during this time and this is you know the early 20th century so what maybe seem routine now could have possibly killed him at that time yes he isn't there for him he has to go back to the office and do more paperwork yes and that even though you you look at it throughout most of the movie the son you could say oh he's so terrible to him how could yeah. he do this to his father but maybe that one thing just set, you know, just pushed his son so far away and the damage was done, and it could never be repaired.
1: Yeah, it's an accumulated, it's an accumulation probably of uh, not necessarily neglect, but him putting his son second, at least in terms of day to day interactions. Although it's also true that he is uh, holding down a horrible job, one that he does not like for the sake of uh, supporting that family. So you have that. And um, uh, the other thing that the the girl says, the former uh, coworker says in regard to that, she says um, when she had a similar conversation with her parents, she said, look, I didn't ask to be born. You know, Uh, the son may even say the same thing. I don't know. But uh, certainly... It's a complex situation there uh, introduced by the fact that, uh, you know, you do have to make a living. And most people um, do end up in positions that are somewhat like this position that Watanabe holds. It may may not be their first, second or third choice of career, but they feel obligated to hold on to it and make the necessary sacrifices uh, to ensure the income. Go ahead.
0: Oh, and... Around this time, this was 1952, this, you know, relations between uh, parents and their children in Japan was something that was explored a lot because I think, I believe, at this exact same year, another famous director, Yasujiro Ozu, he directed a movie called Tokyo Story, and that's a movie about, um, you know, children trying to take care of their parents. There's particular one woman that's absolutely awful towards them, and it's still... Both films were showing that not only just because age differences, living in different times, but showing that there is there was this distance between the parents and the children at this point in Japan.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's something uh, that is, is exacerbated in a situation where you're all living together under the same roof as well. And you can see that tension in this story very strongly. And and, uh, a question I have about the film, situated in the 50s as it is, uh, during or or shortly after um, the occupation, is, uh, uh, you know, uh, all through the 20th century and the early, uh, or the late 19th century, Western influence, uh, there was Western influence in Japan and China. And so this, uh, some people argue that it undermined the traditional family structure in that the more individualistic uh, outlook of us Westerners, right, uh, began to percolate down into the social structure. So you would have more of this kind of friction between kids and parents than you otherwise would have. Now, I don't know the, whether uh, there is an answer to that question or not, but I would suspect that the friction is always there to some extent, but it's it's very well portrayed in this film i think
0: yeah and not only with the family relations but you were talking about this like the when did the occupy you know when the exact year the occupation ended was no like i don't 50 49
1: uh, it was right around 1950 49 yeah. so i this
0: believe is so 50 yeah it's 52 so it's just ended pretty yes. much and the way that you know this government is set up with the city planning it's almost the. It, it, it's very similar almost to like our American government because just recently I showed it just from about Baltimore, The Wire. Mm-hmm. One of, there's one particular scene I know where an ex-gangster is trying to build a boxing gym. To do that, he's having to go to all these city planning and they're like, well, to do this, you got to sign X, Y, and Z and it's the whole thing. Yeah. But through connections, he is able to meet one of the local politicians, and he just signs a paper, and boom, he's got the gym. He doesn't have to go through all that. Yes, and then also the fame, i was talking about before the recording—but the famous Terry Gilliam Bra- movie Brazil, which is like a dystopian where it's all bureaucracy and they control everything, and everything yeah. you have to do has to get stamped. So it, it's almost seen like that bureaucracy is reflecting in Japan post-World War II after the occupation because, like you said, they are reflecting a Western style of government. Yes.
1: Uh, although we should keep in mind that bureaucracies and, and uh, Byzantine bureaucracies are independent of political system, the, probably the pinnacle of such a state would, would have been Soviet Russia or any, any of their uh, satellite uh, governments. Heavily bureaucratic. There's all kinds of jokes that used to be around. Ronald Reagan used to have an index card file full of these jokes um, by Russians about their own system. Bureaucracies uh, are are certainly a fact of modern life. It makes life a lot of fun when you try to get. Especially in that,
0: you know, the big showing of that is the scene when it's the main what ends up what Watanabe does. But there's this um, community. And they are having, there's a pipe break or sewage. Sewage water is basically uh, into their community. Yeah. And it's sort of where the children are playing. And that's, you know, it's this filthy, contaminated water. They want to get it fixed. Yes. And so they, you know, one of the very first things, they go to Watanabe's office and they, they say, well, these people have this. He goes, oh, that's this, this department. And yeah. they get there and it comes this, you know. Comedic it's a great montage. scene. Yeah, great of, scene. Well, you got to go here. And then they go there. Well, actually, that seems like it's more of this department. It's like you said, they're deflecting yeah. responsibility. Yeah, so and these just...
1: poor women are being... It's a group of mothers, yes. right? And there's a... A cesspool is leaking into a, a supposed play area. So they just want them to clean it up and build a new playground. So they, they go to City Hall, which you should do. Front desk, right? And... uh They first refer them to Watanabe at Public Affairs, Uh, and then he he says, "Well, this isn't quite uh, our responsibility," and he refers them to. I have a list here of um, uh, uh, sections that uh, they get uh, hustled to, and it's there's uh, Parks and Rec uh public sanitation civil engineering engineering which i guess is different than the civil engineering and uh,
0: education because it's kids yes
1: and then eventually you see this coming you see this coming right back to where they came right back to the front desk and then they're just shuffled right on out of the building yeah uh yeah um and this gets back to that avoidance of responsibility theme that is in this thing. Um, these people see their jobs as essentially shuff, shuffling responsibility for having to do any work off to some other department, and uh, or some other person in their department. And this is more or less uh, what Watanabe is doing, other than proofreading papers and stamping them. Yeah. Right? Uh, great. I, great imagery in that film it's probably probably other than the swing set scene the the strongest
0: yeah and which sort of brings into how he figures out how to live his life because he asks her um the young woman, like yeah. well, how do you deal with this you know how do you feel so far?" life she talks about well one of the things i do is you know i create these things for kids this like a little, up little toy yeah thing. And that sort of just sets him on his mind. He goes, he goes back to the office. He finds the oh, they were trying to get this fixed. Let's do this. Yeah. And everybody's fighting him. They're like, well, uh, and he's like, no, you can do this if you set your mind to yeah. it. Everybody's trying to trying to set him off. There's even a part where I forget exactly where the how the yakuza come into this, but I think they're connected to yes somebody. And they say, back off. They're threatening his life, and it actually says, don't shoot. Don't you know that your life is at danger? And he has this sort of sly Smirk. smile, like only yeah. if you knew. Yes,
1: it, it, that that holds no fear for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that scene with the with the girl is is crucial because she went from uh, Watanabe's office where she quit, right? Got his permission to quit. She went from there to a toy factory, and she says, "I basically I have some f- fulfillment working there, making these little rabbits that hop mm-hmm. around for kids. I know the kids are happy. I'm doing a service for the kids." That sets him off. That's what, and then he leaves that party there yes. sitting. As
0: at. the party is singing Happy, Happy Birthday. birthday. Yeah. Yes.
1: So it's like his birthday, very symbolic. I love uh, uh, uh imagery there, symbolism there, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, and he realizes, I know what I can do. Those women that came in the office were looking for that playground. Kids, again, notice. Um, I, can, I, can, I can make that happen. And then the movie switches narrative structure and it starts doing flashbacks yes. from after he died and tells this just grinding story of him having to go to all of these sections that he had been shuffling people off to. Every single section had doesn't want to cooperate. He has to be terribly obsequious with some of them. I don't think he threatens anybody. He no. has to be per- terribly obsequious with underlings in the sections, people that technically he would outrank. He's bowing to one guy. He confronts the Yakuza. I believe that is in front of the um, deputy mayor's office yes. again. So they, they're paying off the deputy mayor, who's corrupt as all get out. And they threaten his life, and he just he doesn't laugh out loud. But you can see he's going, serious? I mean, this isn't going to make me do anything.
0: Yeah, which like you said, the narrative structure completely changes where it's the flashbacks. And it's almost the one where it's so frustrating because at the beginning the mayor, because he's being pressed by the he's being asked by the press, well it's really they were saying, Well, it's really Watanabe. He's the guy that really built this, right? Yeah. And then throughout the whole part, at this man's funeral, he's completely downplaying his role. Almost yes. to the part and then it eventually gets to one of the you know, suck ups to the mayor, they say, well, it was really you that did this all along. Right. And that was the part where I even just grind my teeth watching it. because You're just.
1: And it's very interesting. At the man's funeral. At the man's funeral. And it is at the part part of that wake where the people that are in attendance are all kind of higher up in the command structure. They're all the section heads and the deputy mayor. Um, And it seems to go over. Until the they women leave. show up.
0: Yeah, and the women show up.
1: And that whole suck-up narrative just falls apart because they go over there and they go to the shrine with the picture of Watanabe up there. And they're totally broken up. They are totally broken up. And we find out later in the film, he was out there every day supervising this construction project. And even quite ill. He he falls down, remember, and they have mm-hmm. to pick him up and sit him up. Sitting, he doesn't leave. He probably is so ill he should have, but he doesn't leave. He stays there and he oversees this construction. So obviously, there's a deep connection between those women and uh, him, and that totally, totally uh, uh, destroys that uh, uh, deputy mayor's self-serving narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: And it's interesting because after that And then the deputy mayor and some of his underlings leave And it's just more the people who worked with Watanabe yes. Their big question is did he know Yeah, And throughout the flashbacks And they're still not sure But then a policeman, the policeman who saw him Swinging on the set He tells a story of He was there, I thought he was drunk He was singing this song And they it's that same song, The Life is Brief Yes And then they say he knew And then yeah. they're and it, which was interesting because it leaves this question of what is Watanabe's legacy? There's, you know, it's the typical, like I said, drunk guys saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Yes. And they're saying, we're going to honor him. And there's one guy who's not drunk, actually, who's yeah. actually the whole time when that mayor was making that self-serving speech was saying, no, it was Watanabe. Yes. He's disgusted by everything because he knows it was Watanabe. Yes. There, so all the drunk people are making the aspirations. He's quiet. And they're saying, we're going to honor him. In the very last scene of the movie, well, actually, second to last, there, it's one of the guys has taken over for Watanabe. Somebody comes up to him with another problem, and he goes, That's that department. Yeah. And then you see the guy standing up because. This is the
1: guy that had been standing up for Watanabe in the
0: wake. Yes. Yes. And he stands up, and he's just outraged because what happened to those promises you made at the funeral? You're not honoring Watanabe. Yes. And they all just kind of look at him, and then he has this defeated look. And one of the best shots of the movie, he slowly sinks back to his chair, and his face is obscured by the paperwork, the pile of paperwork. Yes. Yeah.
1: So that does and- raise the question: What's the ultimate message of the film? Uh, I think it's twofold. Uh, I, I think it does a very good job of illustrating uh, um, a, a, a piece of advice. That, or an outlook on life, that you can find in existentialist philosophers and to some extent in stoic philosophers. The importance that you take every moment of your life and live it in a, in a way uh, mm-hmm. that they would describe as fully authentic. You're making choices not because you're being impelled by externals, After all, those externals will be excuses for you to avoid making your own autonomous, free choices, right? And we see Watanabe evolve in that direction. And hopefully we see all of those drunks at the wake evolving in that direction. You're really rooting for them. They're going to go back and they're going to change that bureaucracy. They're going to fully take on... uh, The responsibilities, getting back to that, uh, not avoiding responsibilities, but take on the responsibilities that are part of those jobs. After all, they're very important jobs. You're the government. If your government doesn't function well, society doesn't function well, Human uh, individuals cannot flourish. So you think they're going to do it. But they go back. And because they're not in the uh, emotionally charged atmosphere of a wake, perhaps, Uh, They fall back into old habits, and I think that gets back to another possible message with this. It, like I said earlier, it's a common um, it's a common occurrence with human beings that when they're confronted with their own mortality and their own death, they start thinking like Watanabe does, and they start acting like Watanabe does. And uh, you think it may be more permanent, uh, become a permanent part of their lives. But unfortunately, it's also human nature, I think, that once those kinds of crises pass, maybe you discover you're not going to die so soon. Uh, maybe you discover that you're not going to be going into combat some da- or uh, some other dangerous situation. People will tend to fall back into not uh, living that fully, quote, authentic life that the existentialists and the Stoics talk about. Um, and start having their choices being made by externals again. And I so I think it's a mixed message, and I think yeah. it's an accurate message that that is the way human beings tend to be. We have this ideal we should strive for, that that fully authentic mode of life, uh, where you're not being led about and buffeted by your externals, but working from your your deep moral convictions. Right. Um, but at the same time, the externals are hard to avoid. And there are many of them. And um, sometimes purely for the sake of mental and emotional economy, you, you, you do find that you have to let the externals kind of lead you in some, some sense.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to other podcasts such as Ethics in the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found at the soundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.